Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Well, Merry Christmas, Calvary Chapel. Surprise, it's not Pastor Tim. No one's more surprised than me. No, he gave me more than this morning of... It's good to see all of y'all. All right. Well, for those of you who I have not personally met, my name's Alan Buckley, and my wife, Crystal, we have Ava, Ella, and Luke. Usually they're off in the children's ministry or running around out here like crazy, but they're in the sanctuary today. Uh, we've been calling Calvary Chapel Columbia our home for about six months now, and it is a joy to be able to uh, bring God's word to you this morning, and so we, uh, we're excited to do that, and we stand in a little bit of anticipation as the Lord is going to, to bring a message uh, to us. Pastor Tim is uh, taking a little bit of vacation. I think he's earned it. Some downtime with the family, some back with fresh vision uh, for the church going forward. Uh, would, you, would you stand with me and um, open up in our Bibles to Habakkuk? No, I'm kidding. I just... I'm, First service got Obadiah, you guys got Habakkuk. I want to see the fear in your eyes as you were trying to flip over to Habakkuk and figure out where that's at. John chapter 3 should be, uh, will be our study this morning. We're going to be studying uh, verses 14 through 18, but we'll pick things up, verse 13, to give a little bit of context of, of what's going on. And so these are the words of our Lord of Jesus as he's speaking, speaking to Nicodemus. He says this in John 3.13. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world would, might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your son, Jesus. Jesus, we're thankful for you. We're thankful that we can open up your word, we can study it. And Lord, in your word, it's just not some textbook, Lord, but it's, it's alive and it's, it's breathing, Lord, that you had with Nicodemus, Lord, pointing us to eternal life. Lord, we pray that it would wash over us freshly, Lord. A text that we might be very familiar with, Lord, we pray that you would make it anew, bring it new life to us. And Lord, I just pray that you would anoint my lips to speak your word, Lord, that you would take these loaves and fishes and multiply them however you would like, Lord. And Lord, I ask and pray that there would be no distractions in this room, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. We invite you here. And Lord, we ask that you would guide us and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. What is, what is Christmas? This should be something that 
is on the top of everybody's mind, given that yesterday was Christmas. It should be an easy question to answer. Uh, But in reality, the answers given, if you ask people, will, will vastly depend. They will depend on whether someone is a follower of the Lord or someone is not. And I would say for anybody that is, let's just say, of the world or of our culture, when you ask them, what is Christian?, it's going to come up with a lot of different answers. If you listen to radio or you watch TV, our culture will tell you that the season of Christmas, this season is the season of joy. It's the season of lights, the season of gift giving. Maybe they'll say it's the season of family, spending time with loved ones. Maybe if you're like me and you turn on the radio, there's about 3,200 jewelry commercials in a 20-minute period. It's about jewelry and finding that special gift for someone. Or if you're fortunate enough, it's that big red bow on the shiny new car. We've all seen that commercial too. All of those are wonderful and great, and praise the Lord if you did get the car in the driveway with the, with the big red bow. I'm not discounting it. That's a, that's a phenomenal gift. Thank the person that gave it to you. All of those are wonderful and great, but to be honest, they completely missed the point of Christmas. There was a research study done by Pew Research, and it said that 54%, so greater than half, 54% of Americans say that they do not consider Christmas as a religious holiday. And that was in 2017. So you can imagine the way we have seen society devolve over the last two years really rapidly, how great that is in society, in American culture. Think about it. That 54% say that they don't even consider Christmas as a religious holiday. And it should come as no surprise to any of us in this room Uh, that, you know, depression and suicide rates are at some of their highest points during these winter months and during this Christmas season. But it should also not be a surprise that when a society that predominantly considers Christmas a cultural event, that, or excuse me, iPads like to jump when you you use them. No, with a society that predominantly considers Christmas a cultural event where the newness of the Christmas gift is all but forgotten within a month, we can see how hopelessness, despair, and a lack of meaning and joy can set in within our culture. And yet in stark contrast to that, Jesus himself gives the true meaning of Christmas and he gives us true hope. Jesus tells us the purpose of his first advent, the purpose of his first coming is to give hope to you and I. Jesus tells us in the most famous verse in the Bible, if you're a football fan, you've seen it in the end zone, John 3, 16, there's always the one guy holding up the sign, praise the Lord for him. But what's that most famous verse in the Bible? We all know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave, God the Father gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The joy of Christmas is that you and I and all of mankind 
does not need to live under condemnation. We don't need to live under sin. But that we're saved by accepting this free gift of salvation from God the Father, of his Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Messiah. And by receiving that, we have life in his name. Jesus says in verse uh, 18, he says, whoever believes in him, speaking of himself, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Living with no condemnation, now that's the true joy and the true hope of Christmas. And Jesus in his infinite wisdom knows what the question to many people will be. You know, is Jesus just a way to heaven? You know, it's fine if you Christians want to celebrate Christmas and you want to go to church and and all of that, but that's just, that's just a way. And Jesus is like, no, it's not. And I know you're going to ask that. And so later in John 14, Jesus says this, to give us hope as, as believers, Father, except through me. Sorry, everybody else who wants to have you live a religious life, maybe a good life, do a few good deeds, but it doesn't get you into heaven. In fact, the apostle John writes toward the end of his gospel, the Gospel of John, which is what we're studying this morning, he actually tells you as the reader why he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the Gospel of John. Does anybody know? We've read through it a million times as believers, hopefully. He actually tells us why he wrote it. And in John 20, he says this. He says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. He did a ton of them. Did many other signs in the, in the presence of his disciples which are not even written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and here's the key, and that believing you may have life in his name. It's the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. It's why the Holy Spirit inspired John to write it, that you and I and everybody watching online can open it up, and going through it, we can have belief that Jesus is the way, the truth, in the life. It's interesting, the word believe through the gospel of John, if you do a study, it, it, it's a tremendous multiple dozens of, of times that the word believe is actually mentioned. But just in our passage alone, four short verses, John brings up this idea, or Jesus brings it up five times in our verse. Why? Because it's important. Because all of humanity, you are created right now in this moment in the decision that you make what you do with who Jesus is, who you say that he is, determines your eternal future. And so believing is the most important thing that God wants us to take away. So God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is written that we may believe. And what's awesome as believers, I don't know if you guys realize this, hopefully you do, but in the Bibles that you have in your lap is the full revelation of God. We don't need a guy in a pulpit. We don't need a guru. We don't need anybody else to point us to Scripture. God wants us to be Bereans. He wants us to open this up, study it. When you hear something, check it, because in this is the full counsel of God. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter, his second epistle, chapter 1. He says, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that's Jesus who called us by glory and virtue. And so the Christmas summary, to put it plainly, to have a Christmas with lights and gifts 
and family, but fail to have Christ in the center of the celebration is to have nothing at all. Christmas is the celebration of the free gift the Father has given us in Jesus, his Son, that through him we will have everlasting life. Knowing that probably most people in here are Christians, I would ask that as we, and if we're not Christians, we'll talk about that in a second, but I would ask that we sit here regardless the day after Christmas and truly contemplate who Jesus is and the purpose of his first coming as we prepare for his second coming. And we've been talking about that. Pastor Tim has been taking us through Revelation of what his second coming will look like, and it looks vastly different than his first coming. You're going to want to know the Lord now. Today is the day of salvation. So in our passage this morning, if you're a note taker, we're going to look at three. Jesus is saying that salvation is by faith alone. And we're going to, we're going to get into that. Verse 16 Jesus is really going to, he's going to point to something else. He's going to say salvation is initiated by God, but that we all have a part in it. So it's initiated by God, but received by man. And then verse 17 and 18, salvation frees us from the condemnation of sin and death. So in our study this morning, we actually pick up the conversation uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus. It's in the middle of this conversation that's taking place. It all happens in the first part of uh, the first half, really, of John chapter 3. But you're introduced to this man named Nicodemus, and he's come to Jesus by night, and he's earnest, he's seeking. And the entire conversation that Nicodemus is really just tripped up on revolves around being born again or eternal life. And he's asking, you know, what does this mean? But who is this Nicodemus? Why is this character brought in by the Holy Spirit? And we have a, a spotlight shown on it because we already saw that Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this gospel. So why does the Holy Spirit bring it out? Nicodemus is an interesting guy. Just as the apostle Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he held to the law. Nicodemus was a Pharisee as well. And if you don't know that the Pharisees are the legalists, they are the conservative arm of Judaism. They were not going to budge from any of the laws. In fact, they took all the laws, they added their interpretations to it, and they kept those as well. Right? So the Pharisees were just absolutely the conservatives of, of Judaism. Jesus later on, so he's part of, he's a Pharisee, he's part of the Sanhedrin. But then Jesus also calls him later on as well, look, he calls him a teacher over Israel. Like this guy is not just some, some random. This is a guy who is steeped in Judaism, who understands the law, who understands the prophets, and has spent his whole life studying it. And this is an interesting character because if you bring a guy like this, and I think it's actually a good represent, representation of the best of mankind, someone who really thinks that they can do it on their own is represented in this man named Nicodemus who wants to have a conversation with Jesus. And it's interesting. So Nicodemus, as we're going to see, is really just getting tripped up with being born again. You know, he knows that Jesus is talking to him about a rebirth. But you got to remember, the Israelites believed that if we are of the seed of Abraham, if we can direct our lineage down, and if we follow that seed, we have everlasting life. We are God's people. 
And so he's looking at it and he's saying, Jesus, what do you mean that we have to be born again? Can a man enter into his mother's womb again? He literally asks that. Like, his mind is just tripping up over this. He's not getting it. He's equating the physical world and his religiously trained mind are having a clash. And he's saying, how are we born physically, but also reborn spiritually? Verse 9, he even just straight up asks Jesus, he says, how can these things be? I don't get it. And here's what Jesus says. He says, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. Meaning that this is not a new concept, that he studied it in the scriptures, in the law, and the prophets. He's just not getting it. And Jesus is pointing it out. From this point forward, Jesus zeroes in on Nicodemus and really all of us, all of mankind. If he is the, the personification of the best that a, a human can do in their efforts, then Jesus is speaking to the heart of all of us. And what he's saying and what he expounds on for these four verses is that the only way to salvation was through faith alone. And the best part is it's been prophesied from the old. That salvation by religious leaders were just missing it. And so we look at salvation by faith alone. Look with me to verse 14. Jesus speaking, and he gives a very interesting analogy from the Old Testament. He says this, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Lord's awesome. The Holy Spirit knows his people, and he knows how to speak to each one of our hearts. He completely understands and gets mankind. He understands us. He understands the things that trip us up, the things that we're going to stumble over. And in this case, he uses this conversation with Nicodemus, who again was steeped in his religion of Judaism. He understood it. He was a Pharisee. He was, you know, the teacher of Israel, as, as Jesus already spoke about. And yet he uses an event in Israel's history to show all of mankind that salvation is completed by Jesus' work on the cross. And it's accepted freely by those who trust in him. A very interesting point that he brings out. So to give us a little bit more color on this, the account, if you're taking notes, is actually found in Numbers 21. Let me read it to you, starting in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, that is Israel, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and, and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So what's the context of this that's going on? Context is key to everything. If you guys have been part of Calvary Chapel, you know context, 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 right? Israel's at war. Israel has left Egypt. They've been traveling through the desert to the promised land for almost 40 years now. Most of the first generation that left Egypt has now died. They're at war with tribes and people attacking them. They've got infighting, bunch of garbage going on, and they come to this point of frustration where they start to blame 
Moses, which they've done in the past. Moses is used to dealing with, with his people, with, with the Israelites. But they took it a step further, and they actually started to blame God. And this was the sin that they committed against the Lord. And then what happens? God brings judgment against their sin by putting fiery serpents to bite and to kill them. That results in death. Sin has a consequence, and it's death. And the Israelites are going through a physical death because of the sin against God. But then notice what Israel does in verse 7 of that account. They confess their sin. They admit, what we did was wrong, Lord. Forgive us. Give us a way for life. And what does God do? He gives them away. And God tells Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent and to set it on a pole in the middle of camp that whoever has been bitten by those fiery serpents can look upon it and be saved. Now, how crazy is this? You're God's people. You're in the wilderness. You're being bit by these snakes. God isn't taking away the death, but what he is giving you is a better thing. He's saying, if you look upon me, you'll be saved, but it's crazy to them. You're looking at this serpent. Why was a serpent used? It's interesting. So God tells Moses to make a serpent because serpents in the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3, from the fall of the Garden of Eden, the sin of Adam and Eve, serpents have always been equated with sin. And so he's saying, I want you to make a serpent for the people to look at. Look upon their sin. But it's interesting. He didn't just say make it, carve it out of stone or wood. He was very specific to God gold. Why not silver? Why not any of that? Because bronze in the Old Testament has always represented judgment. And so when you see that serpent who is sin judged on a pole in the middle of camp, you can look upon it to be saved. All the nation of Israel had to do was look at that judged sin, admit that they're guilt, on a pole in the middle of the camp and be saved from death. It was an act of faith that they had to receive freely. It might have looked crazy to them, but that's all that they had to do. And we can see the parallelism that Jesus was pointing out to Nicodemus. Remember, going back to our conversation, this is, what he's, this is why he pointed it out to Nicodemus to begin with. Just as the nation of Israel sinned against God, so has all of mankind, Nicodemus. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sorry if you feel like you're a good person. Sorry if you feel like you do a few nice things and right things. Those are all great, but you're a sinner from birth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then God brought the judgment to Israel for their sin, and what did he bring? He brought death. Our sin gives us death. The wages of sin are death. Romans 6.23 says. So your sin has a consequence. It's, it's death. And in this case, it is death. Sin is the, is the consequence of death. Or excuse me. Sin is a consequence or death. You guys, I'm getting it all mixed up. Death is a consequence of our sin spiritually in this case. It separates us completely from the Lord. But Israel confesses their sin against God. This is all what he's showing Nicodemus. And they ask to be saved. So, so must we. We cannot be saved from our sin without the confession and repentance of that sin to the Lord. 
The beautiful thing of the Old Testament in this particular passage in Numbers 21.6, it is the gospel in the Old Testament. Israel's sin leads to death. Israel confesses their sin. God restores the people by faith. They didn't have to slaughter bulls or rams or anything in this instance. It was a type, it was a shadow of Jesus to come. Israel looked on the bronze serpent on the pole in the middle of their camp to receive life. Jesus is telling Nicodemus and all of us that he alone would bear our sins on that cross at Calvary. And all we need to do is to look upon him and accept his sacrifice to be saved from death. This analogy that Jesus gives, gives way to the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. So the lesser, which is the the analogy, always gives way to the greater. The lesser in this instance is physical death. But the greater is, is that Jesus, by believing in him, we have eternal life. And I don't know about you, but the world that we live in that is so focused on sickness and death are not even concerned about eternal life. Hate to tell you, but there's two things that are certain in the world. What's the first one? Second? Yeah, we're Americans. It's always taxes, right? It's taxes, taxes, taxes. But that's it, sin and death. Jesus gives us hope for the here and after because we're going to have sickness. And I think what happens in this conversation now with Nicodemus is the light bulbs start going off. They start firing. He's like, oh my gosh, I remember that. And this is interesting. The, Nick, the, the, the light bulbs start going off and the pieces of the puzzle start to come together. Anybody in here puzzle makers? Or puzzle putter togethers? No? Okay. My wife is. Vinny is. Okay. A couple of you. It's interesting. I'm not. It's not how my mind works. I can't do it. But it is interesting to see like a thousand-piece puzzle, and you've got these little facts, these little pieces of the picture that are all around. They're all scattered. And at first, it doesn't look like much. But then everything starts together, and then the complete picture is there. And that's what's going on with Nicodemus. God's redemptive plan for mankind has always, from the beginning of Scripture, from the beginning of time, has always been initiated by him as an an act of faith for us to receive. It is interesting to look at, at who Nicodemus is. Remember, he's a Pharisee. He's raised in religion and was all about following the rules of Judaism. He kept those laws, but he completely misses the heart of God. And maybe that's some of us here this morning. We've grown up in cultural Christianity and family. Well, you know, my grandpa was a Christian, my mom was a Christian, my dad was a Christian, so I'm born. That makes me a Christian, right? No, it doesn't. We know all the words. We know all the holidays. We can maybe even quote a couple of scripture, and yet we have never submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We've never said, Lord, my life is from you. I'll submit your will for my life, and I'll live according to your word and your plan for my life. If that's any of us here today, today is the day that we submit our life. I want you to walk in that plan. So as the context of of 14 and 15 goes, we we now go into verse 16, and what we're going to look at is how salvation is from God but it's, you actually have a part in it. You're re, you have to receive it. But hopefully this conversation that, that Jesus is having with Nicodemus 
now sheds new life on verse 16, a passage that you might be very familiar with. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is the purest and the truest Christmas gift anyone can receive. God loved all of us, loves all of us so much in this room, around the world. He loves us so much that he initiated salvation. He began that work by giving us his son. He gave us Jesus. God loved us all through our deepest, through our darkest sin, through our continual backbiting, our continual rebelling against him, our continual fighting, and even so much, he loves us so much that even the blasphemy of, of God's creation, crucifying him on the cross, is unthinkable, but he forgives us of it. It's the most egregious form of blasphemy, and yet the Lord says, I knew you're going to do it, and this is the way to salvation. He loved you and I so much that he gave his son, he gave Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so the takeaway from the first part of John 3.16 is that God gave that gift. He has done all the heavy lifting in, that, in our relationship with him. He understands that we can't do it, that there's not enough bulls, not enough goats, not enough sacrifice that can take place. He does all the heavy lifting. And the fact of the matter is we all know this. You know, we can't bear one ounce of the sin that we create on a daily basis. And yet Jesus bore all of the sin, my sin, your sin, past, present, future generations if he tarries that long. (laughs) But he has bore it all. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it weighs so heavily on him in that early morning as the cross is, is, is approaching. All the sins of mankind are placed on him, and he is just sweating literal drops of blood. So there is nothing that we can do as human beings to earn our way to heaven. Jesus sweats those, those drops of blood in, in agony before the cross, all so that we might have salvation and for us to know that it is completely initiated by what Christ did on the cross. He went to the cross for our sins. There's no amount of religious works that can be done. You can't knock on enough doors. You can't hand out enough pamphlets. You can't be a nice enough person. None of that makes any difference at all. The giving of Jesus as our Savior It's awesome to see Nicodemus is kind of realizing this now, but it's been prophesied all the way back to Genesis 3, right in the middle of the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve fell. Let me read it to you. Genesis 3, 14 says this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat all Eat dust all the days of your life. So Satan comes into the garden, tempts Eve. Eve tempts Adam, causes him to sin. Sin has entered into mankind. But here's the prophecy of what was going to happen. And this is what just Nicodemus and and the religious leaders weren't putting together. Verse 15, God says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is prophesying of Christ's coming and ultimately defeating death on the cross. So again, salvation is the heavy lifting is done by the Lord, but it also means that we have a part in it. We, we absolutely have to do something. But the good news is we don't have to do much. All we have to do is receive the gift. If I extend a gift to my wife, she's like, no thanks. You don't even know what's in it. No thanks. Not going to open it up. Is that even a gift if you don't receive it and open it? It's not. And that's all that we have to do. The Apostle Paul was, was really clear to point this out in Romans chapter 5. If you get a chance uh, to read Romans 5, it's, it's phenomenal. Just breakdown of how we have death in Adam and life in Christ. But in Romans 5.18, he says this. He says, therefore, as through one man's offense, who was Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteousness, righteous act, Jesus, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Remember how the lesser gives way to the greater? And that's what Paul is saying. The lesser, who was Adam, brought in death to the world, but the greater, the fulfillment, the second Adam, brings everlasting life for anybody who receives it. That is the true Christmas gift. It's a free gift. And Paul was clear on it. I mean, read all of chapter 5, chapter 6 into 7 of Romans. I mean, actually, all of, all of Romans is a breakdown of this. But he understood it because it is the core of Christianity. Jesus finishes verse 16 by saying that whoever believes, that's our part, in him should have, excuse me, should not perish, but have eternal life. It's all we need to do. And that's the encouraging thing. There's no amount of heavy lifting that we can do to get closer to God. It's all done by the Lord. And that leads us to kind of the last point that we want to look at in verses 17 and 18. And that's that salvation frees us from what we're already born into. Salvation frees us from what is the natural result of just being born into this world after the fall, post-fall. It gives us, it frees us from condemnation. Let's look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Think about that for a second. Because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, we are born into a situation to where we are born condemned. And this is why Jesus says to us later on, he's, you know, you, your job is not to judge. We already stand judged. The person that you're trying to witness to, yes, we can point out sin, do it. And there is a cost to that sin, but we don't need to be the judge in that situation because we're not the judge in that situation. They're born into a state of condemnation as you and I are as well. So we're born condemned. Now I know like we're 30 minutes into this and you're like, geez, Alan, that's not a very good Christmas message. It's kind of dark. <laughs> we're born into condemnation. But the good news is, is that there is hope. We're born sinners. 
We're born separated from God, and yet Jesus is saying, through a belief in him, we can stand justified. Wow. Justified. You guys, that's a biblical word, right? What does it mean? Just The easiest way to remember it is just as if I'd never sinned. It's a legal term. We are justified. We can stand justified. We can stand redeemed because of what Christ has done. No longer with the sin of condemnation of the, the things that we've done in the past. No more is that sitting over us. Jesus has taken that. He bore it on the cross so that we have freedom in him. And this is what the world misses with Jesus' first coming. His first coming was not to condemn. We already stand condemned by the law of Moses. And it's interesting when you look at the law, as we're going to look at in just a minute here, but it's a measuring stick. It's a rod. It's a straight line that we are to judge and is really here to expose how crooked that our lives are. It was never meant to save. This is what religious, you know, good people get wrong. And it's what Nicodemus originally thought, but he was wrong about. You know, he thought, if I could keep the law and I'm a good person, I'll have eternal life. All I've got to do is offer, in sincerity, offer, offer these gifts for atonement, follow the Torah, follow the books of Moses. That's all I have to do. And I have eternal life. But he, but he missed the point. All of that was pointing to Jesus to come, all the sacrifice. Romans 3.20 says this, says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Wait a second, I thought that's what the law was for. No. Paul goes on to say that the law simply shows us how sinful we are. That is the purpose of the law. And just as you take a level, a plumb line, anything straight, and you put it up against a wall, you're going to see variances against it. That plumb line, that level was never meant to save you. It's not your hope. It's not your salvation. It was meant to point back to how far away from that straight line that we are and that we need a Savior. It's never meant to save. It's given to show us and to point us to Christ. And the beautiful thing is, is Christ gave us life and life abundantly. By walking in this relationship with the Lord, we have a life given to us that is abundant. It is full. It's better than anything that this world can promise you because it's always going to let you down. We know this. I mean, all of us have experienced enough life to know that the promises of the world are a trap and they're false. But in Christ, we have an abundant life. Does that mean that we are going to be without trials or tribulations or troubles? Absolutely not. But it's that hope that we can have joy in the tribulation, joy in the trials because of our Savior and what he's done for us. And this is the hope of Christmas. This is why we celebrate Jesus' birth. You know, as nice as the, as the gifts are that we receive on Christmas... That new car smell fades away. Get a flat tire. Kid crashes a bike into the side of it. and Right? I mean, it's all made of the world. It's like, it's all going to fade. It's all going to be broken. The gifts get lost. The gifts get broken. They're great for a moment. 
They probably get broken in the package. It's all another story with Christmas being so close yesterday. But a life lived with Jesus as our Lord is the most fulfilling life that we can live. It is why we were created. We were created to worship and to live a life with him. We were created to live a life where his will would be done, where we do his work, where we um, are submitted to his will and to his purposes in our life. And so if the worship team wants to come up, I want to just close with a couple thoughts here. Um, You know, as we're just kind of winding down from Christmas yesterday, it's all fresh, it's all new in our mind. But in this first, in Jesus' first advent, in this, his first coming, you know, what we celebrated yesterday, he came as a helpless babe. Why? I think we found out. He came to save us and to save mankind from the sin that we are all born into. He came as a helpless babe to be a suffering servant in his first coming, to be that sacrifice. He was born the first coming to be the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world. All that so we can accept the free gift. Why? Because of his second coming. Because when he comes back, it's not going to look like it did the first time. He's not going to be a helpless babe in a manger. He's coming back with a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like he comes in on a steed and he starts slaying people who do not believe. He's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. And every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. I would recommend being on the right side of it. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.